You guys know that we finished Joshua a little while ago, and we're going to be starting a new book soon. And it won't be next week because it's Avocado Festival, but the week after, Lord willing, we'll be starting a new book. <laughs> but today, we're going to focus on worship. Okay, today reality is all about worship. The reason being twofold. Number one, we were created to worship God. You must understand that. The church must keep that before itself. We must realize that we were created to worship God. And we've been given a special capacity above and beyond the rest of creation to do so. We were created to worship God. The realization of that will be when we get to heaven and we find ourselves worshiping 24-7, 365 forever. Then we will realize that we were created to worship Him for who He is and what He has done. The other reason that we're focusing on worship today is not just because we were created for it, but also because it is what we need. It is what God deserves, but it is what the church and it is what this church needs. You see, we need to get off the throne. Humanity needs to get its eyes off of itself and on to King Jesus. And worship is good for the soul because when we worship him passionately, we get over ourselves and into who he is. And it restores us to the right place, which is humble. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, saith the scriptures. Humbling ourselves under God and exalting him, getting him on the throne. We are so self-absorbed, so egocentric, so myopic in our vision. We're so absorbed with self. And what frees us from that in the most wonderful way, in the shadow of the cross, is when we worship the king with every fiber of our being. And so we're just setting aside a Sunday today to focus on worship. Now, let's read Psalm 95. It's a psalm by David. It's a good one. Psalm 95, starting in verse 1, David writes, O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountain are his also. The sea is his, for it is he who made it, and his hands form the dry land. Amen? Yeah. Verse 6, David says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And he continues, Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways, says the Lord. Therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter into my rest. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that there remains for us a Sabbath rest, as the book of Hebrews says, that Jesus, you are our rest. You are our peace. You are our sanctuary. And also, Lord, you are our joy. You are our exaltation. You are our king. You are the fuel that we feed upon. You are the fire in our hearts. You are the bread of life and living waters. Jesus, you are all in all. 
You are the center. You are the one. Through you, all things were created. Nothing exists apart from you. And all things were created for you. You are the beginning and the end. You are the initiator and you are the consummation. And so we ask that Jesus Christ, you would be upon the throne of our hearts today. And then now for a few minutes as we talk about this psalm, you would breathe life into our spirits. You would restore us to the place of passionate worship. You're so worthy of it, Lord. We declare together with our mouths and expecting our hearts to follow. We declare together that you are worthy of all praise. You are worthy of every fiber of our being being ecstatic for you. And so we just ask that Holy Spirit, you would reveal Jesus in such a way now in our midst. And you do a work in our hearts. Restore us to that thing for which we are created, passionately praising your name. Lord, would you please help me to communicate your truths by your spirit. We ask it together in Jesus' name, amen. Now, as I said, Psalm 95 is by David. It doesn't say that there in the text of Psalm 95, but Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7 attributes the psalm to David. Here's one thing I want to impress on you about David. David was many things in his life, like you and I. He was many things. He was a father. He was a husband. He was a grandfather. He was a warrior. He was a king. He was a musician. He was a singer. He was a songwriter. He was a lion killer and a bear killer. He was a giant killer. David was a whole lot of things. But at the end of the day, David was a worshiper. At the core of his identity, above and beyond everything else that he did and was, David was a worshiper. And beyond that, David was an encourager of God's people. In these psalms, and in this psalm in particular, he's encouraging us to engage in worshiping the Lord. Because David knew something that we sometimes miss. That real, deep, and wonderful intimacy comes between the church and Jesus when we worship him. Real intimacy. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said this, building upon the analogy that the church of Jesus Christ is the bride and he's the groom. Charles Spurgeon said consider, considering, uh, or concerning corporate worship that when the church together praises Jesus, it is the intercourse of the bride and the groom. It's incredibly intimate. It is the fulfillment of the purpose of the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus didn't save us so we could be religious. He didn't save us so that we could have nice buildings. He didn't save us so that we could be free from a few bad habits. He didn't save us so that when we get old and this body gives out, we might have somewhere to go. Those are parts of it. But the main reason he saved us was to bring us into an intimate love affair. And that love affair was expressed from God's point of view through Jesus Christ upon the cross. And now there is a requirement of reciprocity. And the way that we respond to the love of God is by worshiping the king. David knew that an incredible degree and experience of intimacy comes with God when we praise his name and worship him. That's why he was an encourager of God's people. He says us or we eight times in four sentences in the first half of the song. 
That's hard to do. Us or we, eight times in four senses. He's saying, come on, guys. Let us worship and bow down. We need to get into this thing. He didn't want anybody to miss out on worshiping the Lord. And you know, so much of the church does. They don't view it correctly or they don't engage in it. They think it's some superfluous thing or it becomes some silly ritual for them. But it's meant to be a meaningful heartfelt, passionate expression of a love affair that we have with the God of the universe. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, true worship is being captivated, charmed, and entranced with who God is. Captivated, charmed, and entranced with who God is. David was captivated, charmed, and entranced with who God was. Now I ask us individuals from a place of love and humility, I ask us today, are you captivated and charmed and entranced with the person of Jesus Christ? If you're not, why not? Where's the disconnect? What's going on in your heart, in your corazón? What, what's gotten in the way? What's happening that you're no longer captivated, charmed, and entranced with who Jesus is? If you're not at this moment, listen to me. You've got to begin to try to assess what the problem is. And I'll tell you this right now. The deficiency is not with Jesus. He's not deficient in any way. There's nothing that's missing from his person or his character or his work that would cause us to be anything less than captivated, charmed, and entranced with who he is. And so if there's a deficiency, if there's a disconnect, it's on our part. It's on the part of the church. And don't condemn yourself and don't let the devil do the same. If you've lost that first love, the protocol is just to repent, brothers and sisters. It's just to repent. Peter said to a Yisrael who had fallen away from the living God in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, he said, repent therefore that your sins may be wiped away and times of refreshing may come from being in the presence of the living God. You see, when we repent, it restores us to the place of intimacy, back into his presence. And listen, when you are in God's presence, it is impossible not to be captivated, charmed, and entranced with who he is. Amen? Yeah. I mean, when we really get to the feet of Jesus, when we really get into the throne room of the Father, it is impossible not to be captivated, charmed, and entranced. We want to get to that place today. David says here in verse 1, O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Now, God created music. That's the truth. God created music. And he created singing. And creation is told and we are told to sing for joy to the Lord. Sing for joy to the Lord. If anybody in the world should be happy, it ought to be us. You know, I've heard rumors around town about reality, about the church. There's a lot of them. But one of them is this. Oh, that church, they're the happy clappies. And when I hear that, I say, thank you, amen, glory to Jesus Christ. Because we ought to be happy and we have a reason to be clappy. He says there, let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. The church should never be quiet. Have you read the book of Revelation 84 times? It talks about how loud heaven is. If you're quiet now, you're in for a surprise when you get there. 
Shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. To the rock of our salvation. Jesus is the rock. And we have been saved. Sometimes we forget the fact that we were going to hell. And we deserved every moment of it. And hell is a place where there's separation from God. And hell is a place where there's weeping and the gnashing of teeth and outer darkness and burning, a fire that's never quenched and a worm that consumes the flesh and never dies. It's a horrific place. And all of humanity deserves it. But we have been saved from hell. And we've been saved to heaven and to abundant life with Jesus Christ. I mean, do you understand from which we've been saved? The glory to which we've been saved. If anybody's going to get loud and start shouting, it ought to be the church of Jesus Christ. Shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation, the glorious gospel. Sometime if you start to forget, you ought to just go read the book of Romans. Just read it through about eight times back to back. Remind you of the depravity of humanity, the sinfulness of man. And the glory of God and that he saved us. He didn't have to do it. He willingly did it. And it's absolutely beautiful. And we ought to sing for joy and shout joyfully to the rock. Amen? Amen. Verse 2 says, Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. Now thanksgiving is the right response to who God is and what God has done. And there's really no other way to approach God. It's very clear throughout the scriptures that the protocol for approaching God is with thanksgiving and praise. If you want to come into his presence, start to thank and praise him. When you feel removed from him, start to thank and praise him. When you feel overwhelmed by circumstances, intimidated by the enemy, weighed down by the flesh, start to thank and praise the Lord. And it brings us through the gates and into the courts. Come before him with thanksgiving. Sometimes we need to repent for a lack of gratitude in our little redeemed hearts. We ought to be so thankful for what Jesus did upon the cross, for what he's doing in our lives right now, and what he's doing in the future. He's coming again, amen? We ought to be so thankful at that. We ought to be so filled with gratitude. Gratitude is a right response to who God is and what he has done. Verse 3 says it, The Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains are his also, the sea is his, for it is he who made it, and his hands form the dry land. He's a creator of all things, he's the beginning of all things. The angels understand what the church so often fails to recognize. You see, the angels are in the presence of God, and the Bible says about them that they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. They never cease to say it. They never grow weary of it. See, they know something we don't know. Now, we can't condemn ourselves. The New Testament says that now we see dimly as through a glass. But when the perfect comes, oh, then we'll see. When we see Jesus face to face, we will be like the angels, not in that we'll get wings. The Bible doesn't teach that. But we'll be like them in the sense that we will see him and we will never be able to stop praising him. We ought to take a clue from the angels in that sense that they never get bored with the presence of God. If church has gotten boring for you, I'm asking you, where's the disconnect? Where's the deficiency? It's not with God. 
The angels behold him all the time and they just cannot stop singing about it. Verse 6, come on, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hands. I want you to notice. He says, come on. He doesn't want the people to miss out. Come on, you guys. Get into this thing. Let us worship and let us bow down. Now, throughout the Psalms and throughout the scriptures, we see that the true worship of God is passionate and that it's expressive. We don't see in the scriptures hands in the pocket sort of worship. It just isn't there. Now, truly, it is an expression of the heart. And I'll agree with you that your heart could just be in full adoration of the king and have your hands in the pocket. I agree with you. But I'll suggest to you that usually if the hands are in the pocket and there's no outer expression, that there's usually not a whole lot happening in the heart. When it comes to Jesus Christ and our adoration toward him, we should wear our emotions on our sleeve. I mean, the Bible talks about bowing down. When was the last time you did that? Bowing down. Bowing down. Kneeling before the Lord. Getting on your face before the Lord. Singing to the Lord. Shouting to the Lord. Clapping to the Lord. Oh my goodness, it even talks about dancing to the Lord. <laughs> dancing to the Lord. King David did it. He did it in his chonies. In the linen ephod, in his underwear, 2 Samuel 6, he danced to the Lord. And it says there, he danced with all his might. Literally in the Hebrew, it means that he whirled around. He did the spinning chony dance before the Lord. <laughs> now the Bible says that he was a man after God's own heart. He had an intricate and intimate understanding of who God was. And so when it came opportunity for him to express his feelings to God, his thankfulness to God, his adoration to God, well, he was expressive about it. There was no fear in him lifting hands, no fear to shout unto the Lord, singing at the top of his lungs, bowing down, dancing around, whatever you have. You see, worship is an expression of adoration. So is our obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. But that's another sermon. I'm talking about corporate sing song right now. It's an expression of the bride's adoration to the groom and to the king. And because it's an expression of adoration, and it's a picture of reciprocity because of the cross of Jesus Christ, it just ought to be passionate. There's a lot of things that we do passionately. We get passionate about sports and passionate about this issue and passionate about politics. Listen, all that stuff ought to look stupid in light of Jesus Christ. Our passion for him ought to far exceed our passion for anybody or anything else or any other situation. And I would suggest to you, the more passionate we are for the Lord, the more we will experience of him. There's a great little book called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire by Jim Cimbala, Brooklyn Tabernacle. I suggest that every Christian reads it. Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. One of the things he says in that book is profound. It's impacted my life for years. He said this, very simple statement. He said, in the church, God will manifest himself 
in direct proportion to our passion for him. Let me say it again. In the church, God will manifest himself in direct proportion to our passion for him. Now, when you come to church, don't you want to see Jesus Christ? Aren't you coming here? Aren't we coming here to meet with the king, to do it corporately? We do it on our own throughout the week and wherever we are, and that's good. But let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, the book of Hebrews says. And when we come together, don't we want to see Jesus we don't want to see Britt. We don't want to see Dominic. We don't want to see Pastor G. We don't even really want to see each other that much. We want to see Jesus. All those other things are fine, but Jesus is to be the center and the passion and the core and the fuel and the fire. And we want more of him. I want more of Jesus. In my personal life and in my church, I want more of Jesus. And I believe it's a spiritual axiom, a spiritual truth, that he will manifest himself in direct proportion to our passion for him. If we're just ho-hum about who Jesus is and what he's done, don't expect the big outpouring of his presence, his weightiness, his Shekinah glory. But when his people are passionate and they ought to be, then I believe the Lord manifests himself in the most wonderful way. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Now, sometimes you just don't feel like worshiping. I mean, let's be honest. Let's not pretend, you know, let's not play little Sunday morning games. Sometimes you don't feel like it. You came in here, Starbucks burnt your coffee. They always do. You're bummed out. <laughs> Triathlon was happening. You couldn't find parking. You're disgruntled. You don't feel well, a little tummy ache, whatever it is. The good thing about worship is it's not about you. That's the best thing about it. It's not about us. The moment we make it about us, don't call it worship anymore. Call it singing little three-chord songs with the same old melody. Call it whatever you want to call it, but don't call it worship if you make it about you. If it's, oh, I like this song, so I'm going to engage, that's not worship, that's about you. Oh, I don't like this song, so I'm not going to engage. It's too dark, it's too light, it's too hot, it's too cold, too this, too that. It's not worship anymore. It's only worship if it's about Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, listen, if my people don't cry out, the rocks are going to cry out on the Mount of Olives. And ain't no stone going to cry in our place. Amen? And so when you don't feel like worship and you do it anyway, that may be perhaps when it's of greatest value because that's when it's a sacrifice. And in the Old Testament, you never approached God without a sacrifice. That's very clear throughout the Old Testament scriptures. You came to the temple there in Jerusalem and you wanted to meet with God. The priest would say to you, well, where's your sacrifice, son? Oh, sacrifice. I ain't got no sacrifice. So messy and expensive and dirty and I came all this way. No sacrifice? No business with the Lord. Sacrifice was always required. Now, Jesus Christ is the sacrifice who died once and for all. And so now the veil of the temple has been torn in two and we can enter boldly. But there still remains a sacrifice for the New Testament church. Hebrews 13 verse 15 calls it the sacrifice of praise. Let us therefore continually offer up the sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips to give thanks to his name. Now sometimes you don't feel like praising the Lord, but he's worthy of it anyway. And so you've got a sacrifice yourself and praise his holy name anyhow. A sacrifice of praise. Now here's what a sacrifice is. A sacrifice is foregoing something of value to meet a more pressing need. What's a value? You and how you feel. What's a more pressing need? Jesus Christ and the glory that is due his name. 
A sacrifice is foregoing something of value to meet a more pressing need. See, the beautiful thing about worship is it doesn't matter how you feel or where you are. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is seated squarely upon the throne, and he deserves our adoration and our glory today. And so we just got to get over ourselves and get into Jesus. Get over ourselves and get into God. Just start to praise him. And it's most valuable when you don't feel like it. When it's got to become a discipline, a sacrifice to place, and you press in and you say to your soul, we will praise the Lord right now. I'll tell you, that's glorious. It's a sacrifice of praise. And your heart will follow. You do what is right according to the scriptures and the rest of you will follow. You have a wonderful experience with the Lord, but it's always got to be about Him. And what's wonderful about letting it be about Him is that it ceases to be about us. And passion for God is freedom from self. And I love that. And I need that. And we need that. A passion for God is freedom from self. Now, look at the warning that David gives as we finish now. Second part of verse 7. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness. And then the Lord begins to speak in verse 9. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are people who err in their hearts. And they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly, they shall not enter into my rest. David is reminding them of something that happened in Exodus chapter 17. That's when they are wandering in the wilderness and there was no water. They were experiencing some dry times. And so they begin to grumble and complain against Moses and the Lord. A little bit of dryness came into their lives. And remember, it's because of their own disobedience. But now they're grumbling and complaining against Moses and against the Lord. And Meribah means testing. And Massa means quarrel. And so he exhorts Israel to worship. He's exhorting us to worship. And then he says, don't harden your hearts when you hear this message. Why? Because there's a tendency in fallen humanity to harden their hearts because people want to be on the throne. And they want it to be about them. And worship begins when it ceases to be about us. And so the psalmist says, don't harden your hearts. Just like Israel when they were experiencing dry times in Exodus 17 and they started to complain. And what they began to say is, is God with us or not? What's going on here? We're dissatisfied. And God said he loathed that generation and that they were people who had erred in their hearts. Now, you may be experiencing dry times. It happens sometime in the spiritual life. Sometimes it just happens. There's a, a dry time that's going on. In Zechariah chapter 14, the setting is the millennial kingdom. Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning from the throne in Jerusalem. And once a year, he invites all the nations up to celebrate Sukkot. That's the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles, a Jewish festival, which they're celebrating in Israel right now. The day that we left, they're setting up all their little tabernacles or tents. We saw it with our own eyes when we were just in Israel. But during the Millennial Kingdom, that feast is going to be celebrated, and all the nations are invited up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord once a year. And here's what it says. If a nation decides not to come, they don't want to draw into the presence of the king. It says there, I will cause the rain to cease from falling upon their land. In other words, for those who refuse to draw near to King Jesus, dry times are coming their way. That's the way it was back then in Exodus 17, 
That's the way it will be in the millennial kingdom when he rules and reigns from the earth. And that is, that's how it is right now. If you refuse to draw near an intimacy, then you're experiencing a spiritual dryness. You know it. You know what that's like. I know what that's like. A spiritual dryness. And the best remedy for that is to get over yourself and get into God. And to just shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. To just begin to praise him, to remind yourself of the good things that he has done and who he is. Psalm 22, 3 says that he inhabits the praises of his people. And so when his people start to praise him, God is in our midst. And so if you're feeling spiritually dry, what you need is more of Jesus. And the best way I know how to do that is just to passionately praise him, offer up the sacrifice of praise. Now let me tell you something right now. It's going to hurt some of you. But you have as much Jesus as you want. If you're feeling like, oh, I'm far off from the Lord and I don't have enough of the Lord, I want this and that. Nope, you have as much Jesus as you want because he gave all of himself upon the cross. And Romans chapter 8 says, God's not going to withhold any good thing from us, having already given us his son. The church has, you have, we have as much of Jesus as we want. He is inexhaustible. You can dive in and feast upon the person of Jesus forever. And so if you're feeling like, man, I don't have enough Jesus. Well, you have as much as you want. What do you mean? I, I want more. Well, what you really want is displayed in what you do. And if you neglect the spiritual disciplines and praising the Lord and drawing near in intimacy, you have just as much of him as he wants. But I'll tell you another truth. He wants more of you. He wants more of you. Jesus bled upon the cross that we might have an intimate, meaningful love affair with him. We can't neglect that. And if we would just heed the scriptures and begin to lay hold of who Christ is and what he's done for us, when we begin to realize that he is the answer to all of our yearnings, all of our longings, as a deer pants after water, so my soul longs after you, the psalmist said. If we would just realize that he's the answer to all of our wanderings and our wanderings and our goingness, he's the answer to everything. If we just realize that, we'd be so satisfied in him. You might be thinking today, well, I don't know, I, I just feel like I'm in trouble with God, Britt, and that, that's my problem. Well, the Bible says that Jesus is the advocate. You might say today, I, I've sinned so much, you don't understand how much I've sinned. Well, the Bible says that he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. You might say, I feel so dirty, and I understand that. I feel so dirty. Well, the Bible says that Jesus is the one who washes us. You might be saying today, I've been so unfaithful. Well, Hosea said that he's a lover of the unfaithful. You might be saying, oh, there's so much darkness all around. Well, Jesus is a light of the world. You might be saying, I feel so far from God. Well, he is Emmanuel, God with us. You might say, well, I want to see more of God. Well, Jesus is the image and the exact representation of God. You might say, but you don't understand my life. I feel trapped and I feel snared. Well, Jesus is a deliverer and he's a savior. You might say today, well, I feel weak and unable. Well, Jesus is the power of God and he is our sufficiency. You might be in the place where you're saying, I feel hopeless. Well, Jesus is hope and the hope of glory. You might feel today like so much of humanity does. You might be saying, I feel sad and depressed. Well, Jesus is a man of sorrows and he's a Christian's joy, the Bible says. 
You might say, Britt, you don't know what I've seen. You don't know what I've been through. I'm just sick and tired. Well, Hebrews says that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. And Isaiah said that by his stripes we are healed. You might say, well, I'm afraid. There's fear in my life. Well, the Bible says that Jesus is a believer's comfort. You might say, I'm not sure that I could do it. I'm not sure that I can make it through this life. Well, Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. Amen? You might say, and rightly so, you might be able to say, I've been ripped off and I've been wronged. Well, guess what? Jesus is the avenger. You might say, I'm hungry for something more. I'm not satisfied. Well, Jesus is the bread of life. You might be saying, I'm not sure which way to go right now in life. Well, Jesus is the way and the shepherd who leads us in the way. You might be confused saying, I'm not sure what to believe. I don't know what is true. Jesus is the truth. You might be saying, well, I don't know about a particular situation. I'm not, I don't know what I need to do. Well, the Bible says that Jesus is a great teacher and the giver of wisdom. You might say, oh, but this world, I'm concerned about the world and its rulers and its wars. Well, Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth, and he is the coming king. And finally, you might say, okay, well, all of that aside, I'm worried about the devil and what he wants to do to me. Wait a minute. The Bible says that Jesus disarmed the devil and triumphed over him through the cross. And all those things being held as true, you might be saying, so what do I do now? Well, Jesus said this, John chapter 4, the Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. He's looking for people that will worship him in spirit and in truth. You might say, I don't know what to do. Just stop, be quiet, get on your face, worship God, and he'll come find you. You feel far off, get on your face, worship the king. He will come to you. The Father is seeking those who worship him in spirit and in truth. Amen? Holy Spirit, we ask that you come now and help us to exalt King Jesus. Jesus, it's all about you. It's not about us. You are the high and exalted one. And we just ask that now you would inhabit the praises of your people and that a new freedom would come to your church here, this congregation, to worship you. We'd be set free from self and silliness and all those other things. And we get down off of the throne and onto the altar, Lord. Off the throne and onto the altar. That we would be living sacrifices. And that you be the exalted king. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and rule and reign in our midst. Come and manifest the weightiness, the presence of King Jesus here. We want to bless your name now.